And we'll say a prayer before we begin. Loving Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we pray that you would give us uh, open ears and open minds and open hearts today to receive your word. And we ask that you would deepen our commitment to obeying it. Uh, All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most famous chapters of the Bible is Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, it's one of those go-to chapters where lots of us could, you know, if you said what's in Hebrews 11, many of us could say, oh, it's, a, it's like a roll call of the heroes of the faith. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is going through all of the great ones of old times and how they trusted God and how they're pressing on to a city whose designer and builder is God. And so you find people like Moses and Abraham and and others of, of that ilk, the kind of people that we used to hear about in Sunday school. If you went to Sunday school, then you were taught stories about the great ones of the faith. Uh, and one of the ones who's not named in Hebrews 11 is Isaiah. And he's the writer of one of the very longest books in the Bible. Um, and yet he doesn't get a mention, although he might do. Because in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, at verse 37, there's a reference to people who had trusted God even though it led to them being sawn in two. How about that? Now, who was it that was sawn in two? We don't read any of that in the Old Testament. We have no record of a a person who lived for God in the Old Testament being sawn in two. But Jewish literature of the first century included a book that was called The Martyrdom of Isaiah. Now, we know from the very beginning of the book of Isaiah that he... And I should just say that we're preaching through a series on Isaiah 40 to 55. If you haven't heard any in the lead up to this, that's what we're doing. So that's why I'm talking about Isaiah 54 today. But um, (coughs) chapter 1, verse 1 of Isaiah tells us that Isaiah the prophet prophesied during the reign of four kings. So there was Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah had a long reign and he was a good king. And Isaiah had to tell uncomfortable truths to God's people who had forsaken him and who had gone after the worship of the idols of the nations that lived around them. Now some of those kings were okay, some of them weren't that good. Hezekiah was a pretty good king. But he died and Isaiah probably outlived him. But the king that came after Hezekiah was one of the very worst. His name was Manasseh and he reigned for 52 years. Imagine being under the reign of a very bad ruler for 52 years. We get to boot ours out after three. And we sometimes think that's long enough. 52 years of a man who, when we find him described in in the Old Testament, in the book of... um, Where are we? Jumping myself... He's called a very bad man because he spread bloodshed in Jerusalem. And he had many people executed. And it's believed, according to this book, The Martyrdom of Isaiah, which didn't make it into the Bible, so we can't count it as inspired sacred history, but in that it records that Isaiah was sawn in half. Now the story goes that he was probably hiding in a tree, so they cut the tree down and they just cut the whole tree in half and Isaiah was inside and he died. Imagine being a preacher during the reign of a king who wanted you dead so badly he was prepared to saw you in half. That was the end of Isaiah's career. It wouldn't have been a good time to be a preacher because Manasseh's reign 
encouraged the sinfulness of the people who lived in Jerusalem, which was Isaiah's target audience. And so Isaiah had to tell these people, for your sins, you're going to be taken captive. You'll be taken out of Jerusalem, (coughs) captive by the Babylonians. We've talked all about that before. But chapter 40, which Tony read to us before, is, is a turning point. It's like a new commissioning. Isaiah's been commissioned for his work in Isaiah chapter 6, but it's like a new commissioning. And Isaiah has a new message, not one of judgment, but one of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Why is that? What's changed? Well, the second part of Isaiah, from chapter 40 to chapter 55, was addressed to people who were going to be in Babylon. Isaiah wouldn't be there because he'd be dead. And so it was like his last will and testament. He's writing down the things that God's given him that they'll need if they're going to be any kind of God's people when they're in foreign occupied territory. And so chapter 40 to 55 are written in Isaiah's time looking ahead to the time when these people may be responsive. Because in the time of Manasseh, they weren't responsive. In, t- in fact, even in the time the reigns of the good kings, most of God's people w- were not interested. And so Isaiah's preaching probably fell largely on deaf ears. Anyway, we turn to Isaiah chapter 54. Read it with me, please, and keep it open. We're coming to the end of this section of, of the prophecy of Isaiah. And we read these words. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labour. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, The wife of youth, when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. 
All your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals, that produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Now throughout these chapters, 40 to 55, four times we read what what have become called servant songs. Now the idea of the servant of Yahweh, the servant of God, is not something that we discover for the first time in Isaiah. There are several other people throughout the pages of the Old Testament who are designated the servants of Yahweh. So David was, Moses was, Abraham was, some of the great ones, even Isaiah is called Yahweh's servant. But then Israel is called Yahweh's servant. Now what's a servant? Well, it's somewhat akin to being a slave, except they had more privileges and they... uh, It wasn't as... uh, There's no sense that they were being punished necessarily. To be a servant of Yahweh means to work for him without reserve. It means to be someone who is committed to acting on Yahweh's behalf in the world with the intention that others will join you in serving Yahweh. Now in a world where slavery was common and where God's people had been in slavery in Egypt and they'd been rescued, to be a servant of Yahweh was actually the perfect freedom because Yahweh's commands are never burdensome. They're actually good for you. We're actually told that Yahweh's commands are life. Do you want life? Well, live God's way. Because it won't weigh you down. Life will weigh you down if you live it your way or live it the world's way. But when you live God's way, there's freedom. And so Israel was called to be Yahweh's servant people. And so a number of times in these chapters, 40 to 55, we read about Israel being the servant of Yahweh, but then four times we read about this servant that can't be Israel because we read that Israel has become blind and they've become deaf. They've stopped listening to God. They've stopped seeing his plan for them. And not only that, they're in Babylon, which means they're in captivity. But the servant that we read of is going to restore sight to the blind he's going to help them to see God's purpose he's going to help them to hear again so that they can hear Yahweh's word but more than that he's going to release the captives Israel can't do that for itself so this servant that we sing about four times must be someone separate from Israel itself and yet he's part of Israel I think we could say he's super Israel he's mega Israel he's everything that Israel should have been and wasn't. He's everything that Moses and David and Abraham should have been, but sometimes slipped up on. This is a servant 
who is so committed to doing God's work in God's world that he'll pay a dreadful price. But the price is paid because he wants others to join him. Now Israel has disobeyed God repeatedly and they're suffering for it. And yet this section is not of judgment, it's comfort. So how will the comfort come to Israel? And we've seen as we've looked at the servant songs, the comfort will come to Israel when Israel aligns itself with the teaching of the servant. We saw that in chapter 50. Because the servant is one who's opened his ears to Yahweh's teaching. And the people that listen to the servant's teaching is as though they're listening to Yahweh. And so to listen to the servant is to listen to God. But then in chapter 52 and chapter 53, which Tom Guilford preached last week, we realise that this servant is going to die. And the servant will pay with his own life for the sins of other people. So go back to chapter 53. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 53. And look at verses 5 and 6, which is at the very heart of the fourth of the servant songs. And we read there, Isaiah 53, 5 to 6, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this servant will die for the sins of others. He hasn't committed any of his own but he lays down his life for the sins of others and with that he restores them to Yahweh, to God. Now every time we have one of these servant songs, chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50 and now chapter 52 and chapter 53, every time that we see one of these servant songs about the super servant, the mega servant, immediately following there's a commentary which talks about how the work that the servant has committed that's been described in the song is applied to God's people. Now, as we come to the end of this section, we discover two chapters, 54 and 55, which are the commentary. Now, I'm going to preach on 54 today. Nathan's going to preach on chapter 55 next week. But chapter 54 is like a love song from Yahweh to his people that thought he'd forgotten them. Chapter 54 shows the benefits of Yahweh's salvation for his people. All of these things accomplished by the servant. But chapter 55 shows the benefits of the servant's work for the whole world, not just for God's people in Jerusalem. And so these verses that we've read, chapter 54, turn back to chapter 54, there's five benefits that come to God's people because of the work of the servant. And the first of them is in in verses 1 to 3 where desolation turns to joy and a woman is pictured as being unable to have children but suddenly she's rejoicing because she has so many she has to extend her home to cope with them all. Now look what it says there in verse 1. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you you who have not been in labour. Now... This, this is pretty uh, delicate material. And we need, to, we need to read the poetry and allow it to have its force. 
Because there are some women who know the desolation of deeply wishing they could be mothers and being prevented for one reason or another. Now, I don't want to tread on toes today uh, because I know that that's a live issue in many, in many churches. And, and believe me, I've had personal experience of it. Not, not my, you know, but so it's something I'm deeply aware of. But this is an image which is supposed to make us concentrate on what would be desolation, but which has been so completely transformed, the person wants to sing. Now imagine going to a woman who really, really wanted to have babies and couldn't and said, cheer up. It wouldn't be welcome, would it? But this isn't just cheer up, this is sing. And then, in case she doesn't get the message, sing loud. Why? Because this woman's going to find, like Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who'd given up hope of having children, this woman's going to find that she's got lots. And so as you read those verses 1, 2 and 3, you'll see that not only is this one to sing with joy and sing loudly, they've got to renovate the house to make room, enlarge your tent. So this is asking us to think back to the days of Abraham when people lived in tents. So home extensions are required here because the one who thought she's never going to have children is going to have so many that they're going to fill the world. So the second of the blessings that Yahweh has for his people as a result of the servant is found in verse 4 and down to verse 8. And it's an image where shame is replaced by honour. Where shame is forgotten because there's this loving reunion that takes place. So verse 4 begins, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Why? Verse 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Well, the experience of being exiled in Babylon is like a woman who wishes she could have babies and can't. And that joy will come to her. That's the image. But here's a second image. A woman who feels as though she's been deserted by her husband. Now, that's one of the pictures that we have of the relationship of God and his people of a bridegroom and a bride. It's in the Old Testament as well as the New. And so here we find the people of Jerusalem now in exile thinking that they've been deserted and God says, no, it was only for a short time. And so the joy that's being pictured here is the joy of a woman who feels she's been abandoned, who wonders whether perhaps her husband is dead and he turns up again and says... Here I am. Can you imagine that? I went to a funeral a few years ago where the uh, the lady being buried, a story was told of her father. 
And I suppose it was to highlight the fact that her birth was almost improbable because her father served in the Second World War and the family never did hear what had happened to him. So it turns out he was a prisoner of the Japanese and for five years nothing was heard of him. And so the woman who became the deceased's mother had been married to a man that she hadn't heard of for five years. And then one day, who's walking down the drive? It's him. Now stop and think about the possibilities. If after four and a half years she gave up waiting and got remarried, that would have been awkward. But there he is. No announcement, turns up down the drive. It's a little bit of a picture of what's going on here. Yahweh says, well, I hid from you. And you you need to realise it was for your good. But you were never properly abandoned and now here I am. And that's the joy of the return from exile back to Jerusalem. Because Isaiah is looking ahead to the day when God's people will have learnt their lesson and go back from Babylon to take their place in Jerusalem again. Now we read there that Yahweh is a God of compassion and everlasting love. And they're beautiful words. To, to speak of Yahweh's steadfast love, that's the love that makes a vow and won't depart from it. Christians need to be people who keep their word. Did you know that? Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So when Christians commit themselves to marriage, they need to think about Yahweh's steadfast love because when he says, I love you, he loves you with his will and he won't change that. So Christians need to echo the commitment of God to doing what he says when we make promises. But the second word compassion is love that comes from just being in love. Did you know God loves you like that? God has willed his love for you. He's not going to let you go. And that's what he's saying to these ancient people. My love for you is a love that comes from my intention not to break my word. But it's more than that. Because you could grit your teeth in a marriage and go, I'm going to hold on just because I've said I will. But God loves you more than that. He loves you because he loves you. And he's in love with being in love with you. That's what compassion is. And that's how God thinks about us. Which is why he paid for our lives with his son. It was for his love's sake. So God is committed to his people, ancient and modern. He's vowed his love to them. And that's the second of the thing. Their shame is forgotten. And there's this loving reunion. But the third thing that comes from the work of the servant is found starting at verse 9 where Yahweh says, this is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I've sworn that I won't be angry with you and will no longer rebuke you. So that's an image that Yahweh is finished being angry. Now remember about Noah? Noah and his family lived in the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. The rest of the world was wiped out. But when it was time to leave the ark, God gave them a sign that he would never more flood the world. What was that? It was the rainbow. And so the flood had exhausted God's anger at that time. And so now this image is being taken to the people in Babylon. The anger of God that caused them to go to Babylon is exhausted no more and now 
his peace is permanent. He says, the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love, my willed love will not depart. As I drive down to Mafra from Drew and I look at the hills over there, I look at the Strezleckis, they look pretty permanent, don't they? The whole point of this image is think of the most permanent thing you can think of and my love will outlast it. So God's willed love and his passionate intense love are things that will last longer even than the most permanent things that he's made. And it's that love that will draw his people out of Babylon back to their true home in Jerusalem. Well, the fourth of the things that grows out of the servant's saving work, where he lays down his life as a ransom for many, we find in verse 11 down to the end of verse 14. And that's a picture of the ruined city of Jerusalem being restored. Now look at it there. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Now, comfort's a big word in this section of Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people. How do you comfort slaves who are living where they don't want to be? Who've inherited a punishment for the sins of their their forefathers and their own as well. Well, these people are afflicted, storm-tossed. They haven't been comforted. But Yahweh says, look ahead to the day when your city is going to be so beautiful that it'll go beyond being practical. No city anywhere has ever been made of the sorts of things that Yahweh's talking about here. Uh, the great Caesar Augustus, uh, the, um, the, the, the ruler of ancient Rome, his boast was that he found Rome brick and he left it marble. Yahweh is saying, I found Jerusalem ruins and I'm going to build it with the most precious building materials you can imagine. Stuff that'll shine when the sun lights it up. It goes way beyond an image of being practical. What we're talking about here is a city that's fit for a king. Because Jerusalem, Zion, is where God says, I will make my name dwell. And God is saying, I'm going to live with my people again. And so these people have been afflicted. But the servant was afflicted. And he wasn't afflicted for his own sins, he was afflicted for theirs. So their forgiveness and their enjoyment of this city is entirely bound up with identifying with the saving work of the servant for them. And of course these words here are echoed when we get to the description of the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. And so there's a city where Yahweh will dwell, which is marvellously secure... It's a city fit for a king, but it's a a city in which redeemed people will find peace. And so the fifth of the privileges that the servant wins, we find at verse 15. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. And so there's a, a description there of weapon making. And what we find here is that the servant's people will share the blessings of his faithfulness. And so no weapon forged against you can prosper. It won't succeed. Because Yahweh, having taken his people out of Babylon again, is going to ensure their security is unending. But have a look at verse 17 and how it ends up. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication 
from me, declares the Lord. Servants. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Because from now on, after chapter 53, whenever the word servant is used in Isaiah, it's not of the servant, it's of Yahweh's servants. And so the work of the servant who laid down his life as a ransom for many results in many coming by faith in the servant's work to Yahweh himself, being restored from slavery and finding their deepest purpose in being servants of God himself. So the servant creates a people who are servants. And these servants share in the privileges that the servant has won. They take his life and it becomes theirs. Now in chapter 50, which I preached on last time I was here, the servant song says that he's confident that he'll be vindicated. Now vindicated means to be proved right. Have you ever been wronged? Perhaps in the workplace? Perhaps somewhere else you've just had wrong things said or done to you? But then later on perhaps events might reveal that you weren't in the wrong at all. Someone I know suffered very badly in a workplace mix-up where people were plotting against him to have him removed. Somehow he saw them off. But after a period of time, their deception came to light and they left the workplace and he stayed on. He was vindicated. He was proved right. The servant is looking ahead to the day when all debts are weighed, when lives are taken account of, he says, on that day I will be vindicated, I'll be shown to be in the right, even though I suffered like a criminal. That's what we read. But the servants of Yahweh will be vindicated. Now that word vindicated is a lot like righteousness, which means being proved to be in the right. And where does it come from? Have a look at what it says. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, And their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Here's the story. When God's people listen to the teaching of this servant and accept that he laid down his life as a ransom for their sins, they're included in the family of faith that belongs to the God who is the maker of the whole world. They join themselves to the heritage that is the right of this servant. And they can face a future confident that as the servant is being vindicated, proved to be in the right, so will they be. Not because of what they've done, but because of what he's done. And their vindication, their righteousness, comes from God himself. So Zion's security... Jerusalem, the place where God lives, when these people come back, the future that's being spoken of here is one where Yahweh guarantees by his steadfast love and compassion that it will be a safe and a beautiful place, a place where his people will live in peace. It's a place that he guarantees will be secure because of his sovereignty. The saving work of the servant make servants now we know we're talking about Jesus we've seen that before 
The New Testament is very clear that this servant of Yahweh is none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. And so the five benefits that come to God's ancient people come to God's newer people as well. So desolation turns to joy. The desolation of hopes being crushed can turn to joy. The desolation of being ashamed of your behaviour is forgotten. Yahweh's anger is exhausted. It's finished and his peace is permanent. God prepares for his people a place, a beautiful city, a a city going way beyond being practical, a place where he will live with his people forever. A place where people will live in the blessing of sharing in the servant's faithfulness. Well, that's what Jesus does for us. So what does he want from us? He wants us to be servant people. Not self-indulgent, not people who accept the salvation of Jesus as a ticket to that beautiful city, but as people who understand that the true purpose of life is bound up in identifying with Jesus, the suffering servant, who's paid a price for us so that we can find our deepest joys in the perfect freedom of being his servants. Now Jesus himself made it quite clear because there was one day towards the end of his earthly ministry where the mother of James and John came to him and said, I'd like my boys to sit at your right hand and your left when you come in your kingdom. Like all good mothers, she wants privileges for her sons. And what happened with the rest of the disciples? They were furious. When they heard that this mother would come and say to Jesus, give my boys the best place at the table. The rest of them were furious. You can read the story in Matthew 20. But Jesus didn't reply to her in direct terms. What he did was he says, that's how the world operates. Looking for privileges. He says, it won't be that way among you. He says, because you need to be servants. He said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We have been saved by the sinless death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of Yahweh, the one that Isaiah was looking ahead to fundamentally. We've been saved not to live a life of privilege and ease but to live a life of service I was at a 90th birthday party yesterday Uh, some of you might remember the man Clive Stebbins a couple of quick affirming nods Clive Stebbins for a long time about 30 odd years was the director of Youth for Christ in Melbourne he served uh, doing extraordinary things bringing young people together to hear about the Lord Jesus and thousands became Christians because of the ministry that, that Clive had um, he finished with Youth for Christ and went to Sri Lanka where he served as the principal of a, uh, an orphanage and a school having had experience with neither and uh, he's deeply loved in Sri Lanka he came back to Australia in retirement and I met him a few years ago when I was at Pakenham Baptist and uh, I knew who Clive was without ever knowing and now I consider him a friend but he was something of a legend in Melbourne amongst Christian young people he was a bit of a celebrity But when I met him, he was teaching Sunday school. He was coming to Bible studies. He was going into primary schools to teach CRE until they stopped him. So he rang the Christian school and he said, is there anything I can do to help here? He helps with Holiday Bible Club. He told me last week, he says, 
I don't think they really want me teaching Sunday school anymore, so I just help now. He's 90. That's a servant. He just won't stop. Not because he's showing off, because most of the people there haven't got a clue who he is. He does it because he loves Jesus. He has been gripped by the servant and he understands that the only response that is fitting is to render his life as a servant. That's the story. Isaiah 40 to 55, four servant songs. The servant, who is all that Israel should have been, is the way for exile to end, for slaves to be released, to be restored to the living presence of God. When we hear the servant's words, we're hearing the words of God himself. When we realise that beyond words, the servant laid down his life for sins not his own. He paid a ransom for many. When we realise that that's what Jesus did for us and pledge ourselves to it, we discover what life is really about as we become servants of the servant. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your great mercy. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us a God of, uh, a God of steadfast love and compassion, uh, the maker of the earth. We thank you that you've revealed yourself as a God who will not let us go. You've you've willed yourself uh, to to this steadfast love. We thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus uh, as the suffering servant uh, to be our saviour. And so we pray now that you would help us to recommit ourselves to, to living as servants of this King. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hand back to Tony.